0: Hi, I'm Mitch Stocker and welcome to Life in the Peloton and thanks for tuning in to another episode. Last episode, we spoke to Taylor Finney just before Roubaix, so if you haven't heard it, go back and check that one out. Really good. Today's episode is a bit different. You know, I'm talking a little bit more technical. I've got Luke Durbridge again, he's joining me, and we're speaking with Ben Day, and he's currently a trainer on Mitchelton Scott. Uh, I want to have the opportunity to give everyone a little insight to how we train and prepare for our seasons and our races with our our coaches, with our trainers. Ben, being an ex-pro cyclist himself, he understands that dynamic between the science and psychology in everyday training of professional sport. Among other things, this is a big part of what we discuss in this episode. Um, There's one thing that we never ended up answering during our conversation, and that was that magic ftp number that you need to become you need to have to become a world tour pro i've spoken with ben after this recording and he's advised me that most professionals have an ftp between 380 and 440 you know obviously there's guys who are a little bit above that and guys who are a little bit below depending on weight and things like that but you know look if you have no idea what i'm talking about just sit back and listen, and in a few minutes, this will all become clearer once you start listening to this episode. Look, without further ado, I give you Ben Day and Luke Durbridge. Enjoy. Welcome to Life in the Peloton, boys. It's a trio, three-way. I've only done one menagee-twagee before, but I'm happy to do it here with my two mates up in Belgium doing our recon, our yearly recon of the Belgium Classics with Ben Day and my favourite, Luke Durridge of Life in the Peloton. And today we're going to discuss technical stuff because Ben, Ben is a trainer, coach, started off as a professional cyclist himself and has now migrated into a team trainer at Mitchelton Scott, but on his way there was a personal trainer as well as being a rider at the same time, was training some guys, then retired and then became a, an individual coach, was also my coach, was Durbo's coach and then migrated into being a team coach and Not to go too much into his story, um, because I want to talk a little bit more about the tech stuff today, but I thought he was the perfect guy to get today to talk about all the tech stuff that everyone sort of throws out there, and actually half the time I'm just saying yes as well, going, yeah, I know what FTP is, I know what CTL is, yeah, what's my IF today? We're going to explain that stuff today, but we're also going to talk a little bit about physiology and why I'm better at certain things than Durbo. And why sometimes he can be slightly better than me. Slightly, yeah. Um, so welcome you two. Thanks very much. Thanks for having us on again.
1: Turbo, back to back. I know. I've been on here quite often. People are getting used to my voice, and we're also drinking another Belgian beer. So it's a bit of a habit. We should stop recording
0: our <laughs> Belgian beer escapades. We're alcoholics. Yeah. Anyway. On the podcast. On the podcast. So um, I guess, welcome Ben, Um, I think to not get too technical, one of the things that I guess a lot of people out there might know and people may not know is that as professional cyclists, we record everything we do out on the road. We have power meters, which record every pedal stroke that we do, how much power we put through the bikes and that gets recorded onto a Garmin or an SRM box which record that data and we download that onto a computer and put it up on a system called Training Peaks, which is an online system that the coaches can read, the teams can read, and everyone can see this data within the team. The good thing about that is, is that everyone can see what we're doing and what still needs to be done or what if we need rest or whatever. And I think training in the last from speaking to old professionals my directors in the team, and even old professionals from the years ago, stuff's just got a lot more professional. And the way that the racing is done now, it's a lot faster. And from what I hear, it's a lot harder. I like to believe that too, because everyone is becoming a little bit more professional, and we can we can analyse everything right down to the la- to the millisecond of our training, which is good and bad. <laughs> good. Because we can improve, but bad if you want to slack off. Because people know about it. Um, And what I want to explain to everyone today was there's certain metrics out there in training peaks, and you know, some people aren't even going to know what we're talking about, but I think it'll still be interesting. But the people who do know what we're talking about, you know, a certain thing that everyone is measured off. And Ben, you might be able to explain this better than me is an FTP, a functional threshold power, which is what what is it? What is, what is it? Yeah, I'm not going to try and craply explain it. Then take over from where I'm at. Yeah. Why is this so important? This metric yeah. and metrics in general. Sure. Um. The what's the guy's name? do you can't remember straight away
2: there's a, a famous phrase it's often used in coaching circles that it's like what is not measured isn't cannot be managed which was from Peter Drucker who wasn't even involved with sports at all he was an economist or something like that um, but that's sort of the way cycling coaching has uh, evolved into I think it's one of the sports that has some of the most analytical processes involved because we have this advent of the power meter that's come around about 20 years ago. And so now we have this, um, this unit on everyone's bikes where we can measure, we've got heart rate, we've got power, we've got cadence, we've got speed. Uh, there's all these different metrics that we can measure and it means that we have a, a, so much information that we can use to sort of figure out what's going on with the athlete and the performance and what we need to do in regards to their physiology to get them to the end goal. Um, but to come back to, you know, what you're talking about there with the FTP, that was something that was um, defined by a guy called Dr. Andy Cogan and it is ultimately related to the anaerobic threshold, which so functional power threshold, or FTP, is uh, an effort that you can sustain for more or the maximum effort that you can sustain for more or less one hour. Not exactly now, but more or less as that steady-state effort, right? And it's called functional because it's something that you're doing out in the field. It's not something that you're doing in the laboratory. And obviously, you need to have this power meter on your bike in order to to measure that stuff. And it is really important because it's one of those things where if it's too low, then you're just not going to be competitive to all the other cyclists that you have around you. And I think the way you started off this conversation now, it's like, You know, I was racing beginning 2000s, right, and and through that decade. And I feel like back then maybe 50% of people were really in tune with the training that they needed to do and had coaches and had devices and had metrics and were going through a good process. And then the other 50% maybe weren't. But now it's everybody. Like, I wonder how many athletes in the peloton don't follow, follow any sort of structure or any sort of process?
0: I would highly doubt there would be anyone at all. Anyone I, mean. at all anyone. I think maybe it's just the older guys. Yeah. And they, they still know what I they have it. to do, but they, yeah. I think there's a choice for them. Sometimes they go, you know what, I'll do that. But sometimes, you know what, I know best. I'm just going to do what I think is good. True.
1: Forgetting- also, from a distance, it's been revolutionised from a coaching point of view like to be able to analyse... What guys are doing, you know, most of the time when you look at my files, you were living in Colorado at that point. So you could see and train and also manipulate my program from Colorado. So you've got a lot of these guys who are coaching and trainers, they, they don't have to be present.
2: necessarily present. It, yeah. it, it is helpful sometimes, yeah. but it's not always yeah. necessary, yeah. Well, like for this, this weekend, this past weekend, for example, I was out following the boys on the scooter. And it's still... I can visually see what's going on. I can see if they look comfortable on the bike. I can see their alignment on the bike. I can see the way, the way that they're pedalling. But until I actually go back and look at the metrics you know, from uploading the, the computer file afterwards, I don't really know what the performance is like. You know,
0: Is that because we can pull a blanket over your eyes and give you a perception of that we're going really hard, even though it maybe wasn't. Yeah, pull the grimace and... Yeah, you know what I mean? Because is. there is an element of that. Like, yeah. And sometimes you yeah. think you're going harder. Like, Someone told me once that, and I don't know if this actually works, psychology, that you should put a smiley face on your stem. <laughs> right? And to make yourself smile in the race. And it seems crazy, but it, Did, I don't know. You might know about that. Something that probably isn't politically correct, but didn't Chipolino has always have pictures of women? Women on there. Statement? I don't know what that was about, but I don't know if that was about performance or just entertainment. <laughs> I'm sure he was smiling. wait, Well, let's, let's go back like five steps before we go too far. Sure. Why does it matter, and are we actually going out there and doing one-hour efforts to give you this number of FTP, and what is a pro riding at, for an FTP, for people who actually know numbers out there, if you want to be a pro suddenly at home, what do you need to do to be in the World Tour Peloton?
2: Yeah, so I think the interesting thing at the top level is that we don't really need to test very often because we have so much data that we're collecting from the athlete just through following their training process and engaging improvements throughout that and having that historical data of like, this is what Luke was doing in February 2017, this is what he's doing now. So now I have a bit of an idea about what the whole physiology is looking like. Um, So we're not really asking that so much. Uh, We can find different ways of getting that same insight, uh, looking at uh, race files, looking at sort of that historical training data, which is really important, Uh, Or the the FTP model itself, and there's other models out there, but the FTP model itself generally calls for a 20-minute test, which you then multiply by 95% to get the theoretical...
0: So a 20-minute test, we're going out, which is a hell of a day. I've done one. But you're just going out to a climb and you're just going... At the bottom of the climb, press set at the start of your effort. Do 20 minutes as hard as you can. At the top of your finish your effort, you press set again, so you record a lap in your file, and you're doing 20 minutes as hard as you can. And you so take that, that, yeah. that number. Yeah, and then, the... and
2: then we're multiplying it by 95%, which some people, some people don't really want to do that because then it deflates their number a little bit. But it's basically extrapolating what you might be able to hold for a longer term, that more or less 60 minutes.
0: Why wouldn't we go and do an hour test?
2: because it's mentally I know that I know look I don't want to but I'm just saying why wouldn't we because mentally it's very difficult it's it's such a challenge but for example like Luke did nationals in in January so then I have like a a 50 minute test which is just the same like so there's different data points of different races
0: oh from his time trial yeah
2: Yeah, so now I can use that instead of going having him go out and, and do a test and what does it give you having
1: the FTP number? Like, you get, obviously, what you can do for an hour, roughly, by the 95%. But who cares? But, yeah. You know what I mean? What, what does if that if even If you're mean? racing your local crit, what is...
2: Are you getting... Obviously, is, is, is this getting your training zones for... Training zones, yes, but it's more giving insight into the physiology. So, like, okay. ideally, we'd have a autonomous, like sort of like a lactate analyzer that would tell you what your lactate level is at all times, because it's measuring the processes, the physiological processes that are going on in your body, whether it be aerobic with oxygen, sort of the longer steady endurance based efforts, versus the anaerobic stuff, which is very fast, um, available energy, but something that's not sustainable at all. So if we think about doing a lactate test in the lab, normally we see a nice linear curve with that lactate. So like, um, let's throw some numbers behind it for a second. Let's say somebody's theoretical FTP, anaerobic threshold, is about 400 watts we have them do a ramp test. So let's say 200 watts, 250 watts, 300 watts.
0: (laughs) That is my (laughs) FTP.
2: So as we're sort of looking at the curve up to that 400 watt mark, the curve is sort of nice and steady. It's fairly flat with just a small inclination as it's going up. But this is where that that word threshold, a threshold is like um, the inflection point of where it actually changes that rate, that, that curve rate, right? So, so
0: your body stops using. It's not a, able to to process oxygen into the muscles, and now it's using it anaerobically. You're using and you're producing lactate as a byproduct because you can't produce get enough oxygen into the muscles. Is that correct?
2: No, not necessarily, because you're still using all the systems at the same time. Okay. And a lot of people think about it's aerobic system, then it's anaerobic system. Okay. It's not. It's, it's not like a switch. switch. It's when the anaerobic system over like it just dominates everything else that's going on and you have this like lactate saturation in, in the in the blood and uh, in, in Which the stops your legs. Yeah. More or less. yeah so that's yeah, what yeah. causes that, that fatigue that burning sensation burning in sensation. your legs and, and yeah. ultimately um, limits how hard you can go for so long so let's say we're doing that that lactate test i get to 400 watts and now that curve goes exponential it goes really vertical and the amount of time that we can spend past that 400 watts is very limited. Maybe it's only five minutes, maybe it's only a minute, maybe it's 10 minutes or something like that. Um, but for, especially for road cycling and, and world tour-level uh, athletes, it is, it is an aerobic-dominated sport. And so the FTP is defining how, partly how big that aerobic system is, that and VO2 max and if that is not maximized then you you're not competitive to the rest of the guys around you. This is why a track sprinter can't come off the track and and race in these road events. Even though they might have a sprint that kills you, they're never going to get to the finish. So it's yeah. and this is the thing with road cycling. I think it's why it's such an interesting sport and on a training perspective as well. It's like 95% of it truly is aerobic. And if that stuff is not in place, if the if the tide is not high in the ocean raising all those ships at the same time right? then you're not competitive with the people around you, but then that 5% the anaerobic side of the things if that is not maximised for who you are and what your attributes are, then you're not competitive, you're not somebody who can define themselves with results you're not somebody who could even follow an attack um, follow the the wheel and the crosswinds in Belgium Just
0: so are we talking now about winners and losers in the world tour peloton or are we still talking about being in the world tour peloton and not I think even just being in the world
2: tour peloton or not because yeah.
0: like an Ironman athlete at Kona they're averaging
2: 330, 340 watts at the top level guys for four hours four hours plus right so they, obviously that's really good numbers but mm. they don't have
0: that anaerobic development to be able to surge to hold the wheel in the crosswind in, Can they train that, or they physiologically will never get that? Well, it's it's something probably they never had to have to train. Yeah. Why would you train? You know, you're not
1: going to train to be a track sprinter if you've never been a track sprinter. If you're an Ironman athlete, you're only going to train that engine because yeah. that's your winning ticket. Yeah. You're not going to do sprints because why would you need it? Yeah. Whereas rarely <laughs> when- it, it comes to a sprint. Like after eight, eight
2: hours, and you come down to a sprint. Yeah. Doesn't really well, happen often, does it? <laughs> yeah, and no, and, and they're so glycogen. To be geeky, they're so glycogen deficient at that point that it's not a true anaerobic sprint anyway. So, but yeah, so like, let's think of road cycling as something in the middle of the Ironman athlete, and definitely closer to the Ironman athlete than the track sprinter. Yeah, the two very, basically, the yeah. uh, opposites there. But it's important, like, and that's it's why it's such a sport that's not black and white and mm. then you throw in all the other elements of, as well of like tactics you know, ability to ride in the bunch being efficient, choosing when to go bad luck, good luck you know, mm.
1: so. so we'll probably lead to one of our next questions or I think from us tech side of here. well me personally so if you were to structure we were talking before about the pyramid of building a program and now you have your FTP, you've done the 20 minute test how would you go about manipulating someone's FTP? Like, obviously, there's certain athletes that you can't manipulate because, well, you can, but they're always at quite a high level, so you might be talking a few watts, but say a social cyclist, you might be able to manipulate it quite a lot. So how would you go about
2: building a rough pyramid of, of a program? Yeah, and that really depends on who the athlete is and the physiology that they're presenting you. But definitely at, at an amateur level, there's a lot of scope to, to really advance in, in all the different ranges of the physiology. So uh, really you just need to spend time in those ranges, being reticent and aware of what's above threshold because now you're starting to um, limit your ability to spend time in those upper ranges. Uh, but it really can be as simple as destructuring efforts at a sub-threshold level up to that FTP mark. So let's say it's let's say it's 300 watts for example. Any, anywhere between 280 to 300 watts is very focused on the FTP itself, the anaerobic threshold itself. But in reality, everything that you do below, below that and everything you do above that as well is just raising that tide again. So really, everything can be a contributor. But like for a real focus. Uh, approach it would be just to, to spend time close to that threshold, but not really above. Okay, yeah. just under and I'm close, close
0: to. Yeah. You know. So yeah, if you're someone sitting out there, and, and don't take this as textbook, but I'm just thinking myself, like, just say your threshold is 300 and you want to get it to 320. It's not as simple It's simp- it's, not <laughs> a, it's not as simple as going out there and trying to do a whole bunch of threshold efforts at 320. Is it about building, like Durbo said, about building that, that base and, that, and working on that pyramid? You know, like use us for an example. Our preseason starts in November and then we start with, and to break it down for everyone out there, we start with some long base training. We might do some strength endurance and I want to ask you about why we do that. And then we might do some, some tempo efforts, which are below threshold again. Why are we doing all these types of efforts building up for a season? Run us through your thinking when you're planning out Luke's program from November for him to be starting his racing in January. What's your, in a basic term, what's your thinking yeah. of that pyramid build-up? And um, there are different
2: approaches of this for sure. And I think part of that is dependent on where you might live. Northern Hemisphere in the pre-season is a lot colder than what the southern hemisphere is but i am a firm believer especially with the world tour level the professional level of creating a physiology from the ground up if you don't have those foundational pieces in place then you're eventually you're ultimately building a house on a rocky foundation Mm. it's an analogy that's been used before but it really paints this picture well so you have to spend a lot of time in this, this fat-burning systems, like sort of the, the really zone one, the, the lower-intensity stuff, where you're going out for three, four, five, maybe up to seven or eight hours, just really low intensities. Riding. Yep. yep. Riding, yep. And this is promoting... Um, trying, I don't want to get too technical here, but like mitochondrial density, like just basically making the body more efficient at staying aerobic, using fat as fuel, and just putting that really strong base underneath everything else
0: and so how long will you think you would do that for 2-3 weeks
2: no actually probably 2 months three ok months. 2 months yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: that's always continually going on in the background even when yeah. you start to
2: yeah definitely yeah. definitely. Yeah. and again we, this is a general generalised approach because you might find an Ironman athlete for example has that so very well developed already that might not be the limitation so at some point you have to figure out what the limitation is and then you start to at one point you go away from that general idea of what this is what everybody needs but this is what this specific athlete needs in order for them to be successful but yes you definitely need to have that foundation in place and then you start to lay the intensities above that so whether it's um, a tempo uh, the old zone twos which is where we're looking at our favorite <laughs> these are fun efforts yeah <laughs> um, it's max it's sort of maximizing the, that fat oxidation that the burning fat as fuel and um, in reality, like for you guys, like you're doing thirty-five to forty kilometers an hour when you're pushing these ones,
0: and, yeah. and it's like to break it down. It's literally like riding. If everyone can imagine this, is riding long as riding. That's that first step, and the second step is almost like doing not a full-out effort, but just that bit below. Like you're trying to you're trying to catch up to the group in front for forty-five minutes an hour it's not so hard for 30 minutes is it
2: no but then it creeps up and you're
0: exactly it's not initially you're like yeah this is okay and like your heart rate sort of that not threshold but just below isn't it yeah, yeah. and what's this building well I
2: think there's some other things to add to that as well is that it adds a bit of purpose to the training and it's pressure on the pedals you know mm-hmm. I think that's a really good way to put it but this is really maximising that fat oxidative state so using fat as fuel anything higher than that then you're, not, you're going to be burning too many carbohydrates it's going to limit the amount of time that you can spend in those zones um, so you're not going to be able to maximise this part of your physiology
0: this is the important phase in the preseason.
2: your aerobic system drives everything, yeah. we're sitting here right now and we're mostly aerobically driven mm-hmm. so even to utilise that energy from the anaerobic system you still need to have that, aer- that aerobic system in place So it really is the supporting network for everything that you do. And if it's not there, it's basically you build a house out of a house of cards and it will fall over at some point. And what I've seen is that people who come into the season too fast, too hot without being patient in their progression, uh, their peak of form will come very quick, but it won't last very long. Mm. And then their immune system won't be as resilient, like they'll get sick more often. Any time they have off the bike, they won't hold on to their form as well as what they will if they take that time and really build that load in a steady, patient, progressive manner.
0: And this is something that I see, especially when I'm back in Australia in the summer, we race with a lot of guys who race the Australian scene. And I feel like it's our nationals is at a perfect time in January because we've got the two peaks, we've got the, the professionals in Europe coming up in the state that you've just talked about. We're building a foundation for a long season where we want to have a long peak of form. We can't afford to have a flash of light in form. Durbo and I can't afford to suddenly have good form last week in Paris and be creeping this week before the classics. And so we have to build this massive foundation like you just spoke about. On the flip side, the Aussie guys who have a, a completely different season need to really peak up quickly for the Aussie summer and then after that they can afford to take some time down so if you're thinking out there, it's, that's why I think on paper it looks like wow these guys are really evenly matched at nationals which I think makes a great race but you've got to understand the difference in the build for that purpose you know and the, the Aussie summer of racing finishes in, in uh, February doesn't it with exactly. the, with the so Sun too, Tour
2: right? yeah. and you guys keep your jobs or not by what you do I'd arguably say after February like March, April, May, like into the season mm. Nationals like if you focus only on that in my opinion it's rolling the dice if you win and get the jersey that's awesome but if you put a lot of a big spike and big peak into that and then you're creeping in March and April and May and now you're sort of off the radar of people hiring and firing in the middle of the year it makes it pretty complicated
0: and it makes it for a long season for us there's nothing worse than going to these races, and you know you don't have the form even just to follow yeah
1: but you wouldn't do it anyway any, any any other way if you were a national cyclist because in the end your biggest chance for a result and your biggest races are nationals to it mm. under sun tours, mm. so you would peak it quite quickly mm. and it doesn't matter if you're fatigued in March and mm. February and March because you're not racing so I think this, like I said, it makes it quite an exciting race because you got we have to prepare for the whole season, but these got uh, the guys back in Australia peak for that period. But it's very important to peak in that period because actually that's some of their biggest races they do, and an opportunity to yeah. take the jersey. You know? Or it could open a door for them for a career in cycling. Exactly. You know, so, if, that's, if that's what sort of yeah, is you motivated. wouldn't change it. You wouldn't. They. I would say if you're a, you know say if to be Australian cyclist, I wouldn't change my. Formed to be more like a professional because I might be flying in March and there's no, there's no racing, racing in March, you
2: know. so
1: yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. Exactly. well to use another good comparison I think is you know the old men versus women but I think one thing that gets overlooked when people look at women's racing and men's racing you know it's like wow well, you know they're not doing as long and it's a different type of race well but the, on the girls defence they're also training for the race that they get you know what I mean? If they get a 250k race next week, they're going to start training differently for that too. You know, their races, they know what their season is. They know it, same as the Aussie guys too. They train for what they get and the girls train for what they get and we train for what we get. So to explain the difference for people out there who may be watching it from the outer and just wondering what the difference is, how is a female cyclist training differently to us? Training-wise, yeah, you're, you're, you're 100% right in that. You can only
2: race what's presented to you. Um, Training-wise, the, the girls will do a slightly less volume, um, but not, not too far off. But their purpose in training, their ultimate percentage of intensity might be higher than what the men are because when it comes to a race day file, when I look at that and analyse it, okay, it might be three hours versus five hours, or four hours versus six hours to the men's race, but they actually race at a high percentage of maximum, maximum or FTP is probably a better way to state it than what the men do, mm-hmm. and it's just it is a nature of the of the fact that the the races are shorter, so they get into it a lot more. Uh, it, I think professional male cycling is very organised in terms of team tactics and and can be. Well, controlled by certain teams, um, whereas the women it's it's a little bit more open, and so they end up having a lot more aggressive style of racing. Mm. So, you could arguably say, Well, they're racing harder, they're racing harder than the men, maybe not as long, but they're racing harder. Yeah, uh, but there's differences there, and that's 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 tough to be, you know.
0: So, do you think they focus on more? Threshold work or high-intensity work, anaerobic work? Or? Yeah, more sort of
2: dynamic stuff. The The aerobic development stuff, the, the foundation that we are talking about before, male or female, um, road sprinter versus road climber, there's not a lot of variation between all of that because it's something that everybody needs to have. It's only when you sort of get further down into the season when you're starting to work on specific strengths and weaknesses of like – you know, this is what makes you be successful. This is what makes you be successful. So this is why you would tailor your training that way. So for the girls, let's say, if it's somebody who's uh, a gyro Climate, so, you know, hardest women's tour, multiple days, they need to have more aerodynamic... Aer- sorry, aerobic development than, uh, let's say, the, the one-day races or the sprinters. So that stuff is still similar in the in how they're different in how you need to approach the specific stuff which is similar to the the men if yeah. you have a Giro D'Italia yeah. con- contender like a versus a classic
1: tour-based. rider yeah. obviously it's the same but yeah. Uh, yeah, slight, there's slight differences yeah. but
2: yeah. yeah but the girls I would say overall they need to be a little bit more dynamic in terms of uh, having a little bit more aerobic anaerobic content in the in their preparation, but it's such a slight difference. You know, now we're talking. I said before, with the men, it's maybe just to throw a number on it, and I don't know how accurate it is. Let's say ninety five percent aerobic and five percent anaerobic, whereas for the girls it might be ninety four percent aerobic and 90, and six percent anaerobic, something like that. There's just a slight difference. It's in not like huge, Different but it's balance. a slight difference. Yeah. yeah, but I guess you wouldn't. You would race differently
1: if your race was also three hours, you know? So this is also...
2: What if you're a crit racer? Yeah. You know, stuff like that. True. It's still ultimately, especially an hour and a half crit, for example, it's still ultimately an aerobic event, Mm. but it's so surgy, so many spikes coming out of the corners and stuff. Mm. It's just a different type of fitness.
0: Let me now compare then in our sport, the men's, as we're coming up to the classics, one-day racing, How do you train a guy like Durbo opposed to a guy like, I don't know if you train him, you probably don't train him, Simon Yates, a tour rider? What are the physiological differences between a guy who can back up day day, by day by day by day by day and a guy who after one day is in the bed with his compression boots on, crying. Dead, <laughs> dead. But on that one day can produce so much good, but then the day after, what's the, what is that physiological difference between tour riders and one day races? Is it preparation or is it just how they're born? Yeah, I could I redefine your question there a little yeah, bit? There's, yeah. there's not a
2: lot of differences between you can't train me to win zero. Phys- I don't. <laughs> no, <know. laughs> well we can cut a few arms off and make you 20 kilograms lighter or something what like, you like do. that mate, mate, any training is going to make so we can't, the <laughs> so Yates on is on drinking beers every week recording every, yeah, podcasts not, yeah. every, 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 every week, week yeah. these espressos <laughs> um, the physiology is not hugely different because it's you know Luke is very aerobically dominant athlete in terms of his physiology Um, so it's not very contrasting except for the fact that there's probably 20 kilograms difference and obviously some power differences behind that let's throw somebody else in the mix let's think of like um somebody who's punchy like, a, like Simon Grans in his day or Michael Matthews or somebody like that. Somebody who has that sprint power, sort of like a one- or two-minute power. Philip Gilbert, for example, I think he was a great example. And actually, I remember Luke racing against um, Philip a couple of years ago, and it was E3, right, when mm. you followed him up. Which column was it? Oh, might have been Warrigan, maybe. But maybe. Yeah, okay. yeah. But it's like, he explodes. Like, Philip has that that one-minute pal. He's won Amstel so many times, he's got that amazing acceleration. acceleration. Is that lactate threshold tolerance? No, it's actually uh, lactate... um, Producing. Well, yeah, lactate buffering ability. Like, being able to deal with... Yeah, the tolerance to it. Yeah,
0: he Uh, can, like Brad McGee supposedly had this... Right level he could just roll around with 19.19 level of lactate in his legs.
2: Which is a sign of anaerobic development, which is huge. Yes, Is it? Yeah. So, like, if you don't have massive anaerobic development, and let's simplify that for a second, fast-twitch muscle fibre, if you don't have a lot of that stuff going on, you're not going to produce a lot of lactate in the first place.
0: But then... Is there then Because it's what? not
2: bad
1: lactic. Obviously if you produce A lot of it Then they, okay. they can be a lot More explosive
2: They can be a lot More explosive But the
0: Doesn't it slow them that, down Yeah The cost of that Is
2: that It's not energy efficient So then They won't be a good Grand tour rider So like Philippe might win He won many Great one-day monuments and stuff, but he all of them, he, them arguably yeah, <laughs> arguably isn't a guy who's going to win um, a grand tour just because he's not efficient aerobically efficient for mm. those longer races. He can't recover as well day in day out because that anaerobic system is, is too strong for his aerobic system.
0: So then, why does a guy like Durbo ride well in a one-day race? Because I see myself as a bit more like a Gilbert type rider. Yeah, more punchy. Yeah. More punchy progressively getting less and less day by day. But Durbo, on the other hand, like you said, is a bit more of an aerobic rider, yet can still cross across and do these one-day races really well. Yeah. We can use the, um, the tides
2: and use that analogy, right? So, like, let's say the aerobic system is really, really big. So now this brings the, the boats that are sitting on, on this sea, this ocean, it can bring those boats higher. And that's sort of the thing that helps him get to the level that he gets to. Whereas let's say an anaerobic rider, that sea might be a little bit lower, but the boats on top of tour, that's the anaerobic system. So you're able to achieve similar results but through a different method. But when it comes to a grand tour or like a longer stage race, that ultimately will be a detriment because it's just not energy efficient.
0: So you're saying that a tour rider can do one day race as well? but a one-day rider probably can't do a tour rider well.
2: Not necessarily, because yeah. then a grand tour rider might just not have that punch and able to, to stay yeah. with the rider. To go back to the example of when, when Luke was following Philip around the, the other year, Philip would attack and Luke would respond and he's like three metres behind all the way up the climb. Just... Didn't have the punch to be able to get
0: across to him, and, it's only, and then he would ride back later. It's
2: only through the sustained effort. Once the effort becomes a little bit more than just you know a violent acceleration, that Luke is able to claw his way back, as his aerobic system is still. Is this more energy efficient throughout, so he can hold that for a longer period of time, but he just can't hit it as hard in that initial acceleration.
0: Do you think then also this is another topic I want to touch on is that. And I'm sort of seeing that now is, whether this is true or not, and you sort of debunked it, that a tour rider can be trained to do well in a one-day race, opposed to the other way around, that also the psychological fact comes into it. Durbo wanted to do well in these classics, even though he wasn't naturally suited to it. And guys who are naturally suited to it, maybe they don't want it as much, but suddenly they're in the front of the race without meaning to. And then they want it because they're like, well, I'm naturally good at this. Durbo not naturally being good at the classics... I wanted it that much that he made it his own. Do you think that's an element of it?
2: Well, you can't be successful out here if you're not somebody who's a glutton for punishment. <laughs> yeah, or it's such hard racing that you have to be I motivated for it. I haven't won one yet, so we're just
0: like, <laughs> well, like opposed to Grand Tours. Like, <laughs> let's, just, let's just
2: win one. Be honest, mean? Yeah. No, you still you still need to have the physiological attributes, the the, the motivation, the mental side of things is. is paramount to put the icing on the cake but you still have to have the physiological attributes to succeed up here yeah. and if you're not somebody who can explode accelerate at all then you know you think about Flanders and how those climbs are only a couple of minutes long like if you can't produce really high watts per kilo for, for that short period of time or even just high absolute watts then you're just not even on the wheel you're not competitive so you still have to come here with, with, with the appropriate attributes the scenario here is that Luke is just arriving with that, with sort of like the aerobic system supporting that success, whereas others might be. More of that anaerobic system that turbo bolted onto the engine they can just punch it a little bit harder but they're not going to last as long because don't forget that these races are still six, six and a half hours long, Mm. so still ultimately driven by the aerobic system but you have to have that anaerobic contribution to be able to make a difference to be competitive, to stay on the wheel, to be able to move up fight, all these different things throughout the day, so really tricky balance
0: on the back of that, and that's what I wanted to discuss, and something is a bit more personal to you now, I wanted to discuss the difference now between a coach and a trainer. Because I think there are a lot of good trainers out there, a lot of people who know what we're talking about. Physiological side. Yeah, exactly. The physiological side, and we call them maybe a bit more scientists, who can write the best program in the world. But and I'll speak personally here, if I don't believe in that person and that program, it doesn't matter how good that program is, I'm not going to do it that well. Vice versa, it could be a pretty shit program, but if I believe in that person, I'm going to do it to a T and believe that's the best thing ever. I guess what I want to ask you about is, it's been a bit of a transition for you being an ex-writer and understanding what it's like to be a writer, and that's a massive bonus, I think, to you as a coach is that you're, you've come the flip side way and you've learned how to train scientifically, yet keeping in the back of your mind like, hang on, I know the psychological side of what's going to be to be to do a rider, to go out and do these tempo efforts, to blah, 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 blah. So I guess what I want to ask you is the, to define the difference between a coach and a trainer and how have you found that balance? over your time now as a, as moving through ex-cyclists, part-time trainer, full-time coach to then a team trainer, you know, those different phases.
2: The athlete is not elaborate. I think it's the simplest way to put it. You don't have this athlete in this controlled environment where this is the perfect thing to give them to have them succeed. So knowing everything that goes into what performance is, it's not just... Numbers, it's not just power numbers or a training plan or anything like that. There's nutrition tactics, the mental state, um, the, the, the small nuances of even altering the training in the weeks beforehand um, or during the, the races themselves. A lot of that is just uh, one partly experience, but also just like listening to the athlete and being engaged. The thing, so science for me. As, when I was the writer myself, I was always very interested in the role that science played in, in the, the coaching side of things. And I have sort of become a coach because I realised at one point I didn't know what the hell I was doing and I wanted to understand it more. And then I realised that I'd been living that uh, athletic development for so much of my life and it, was, it really defined my everyday sort of thing. Did you have a
1: mix of a coach and a trainer throughout your career like you had like a trainer to realise the benefits of someone who knew the science of training but then you also had the benefits of a guy who maybe knew nothing about that side but also motivated you and believed in you and you had this basic sort of program did you see
2: actually there needed to be more of a combination or so similar to you guys in early development in that I had Queensland Academy of Sports Australia Australia has these amazing sporting institutes set up where you you have, you have your coaches, people who are putting the whole recipe together but then also at the institute you'll have the sports scientists or the nutritionists, the specialists in their field helping put those little parts of that performance spectrum in place for you but it's still really the coach's responsibility to help mix that pot together and ultimately define what performance is. So I had experiences of like, you know, working with some really great coaches, working with some really smart scientists, and then my own experiences of like what actually resulted in working and what didn't, what I sort of felt was a waste of time. And then when I got to the end of my career or even halfway through my career starting to do the coaching thing is, is, a, is a question I was starting to ask myself more of, like what role does science play in the performance aspect and I struggled with it for a while to really see the role that it played because it's not necessarily a direct role mm-hmm. I think a lot of the time science learns from amazing extraordinary performances like Usain Bolt for example That is not supposed to be feasible. Like, if you look at all the scientific literature like this beyond human limits, I think you see that in cycling at the the very, very top level as well. Like, you think of a Roger Federer, you think all these. Amazing athletes. They're defying
0: science. They're defying
2: science, and now let's analyze them and figure out why they're able to do what they're trying to do. And
0: then they're
1: going off a basic feeling of like, well, that feels good, or that's what I like to do, and they're in tune with their body. Where you're just, science is trying to quantify it, and
2: it's just not
1: quantifiable.
2: (laughs) certain, Certain times, So then we, as the scientists can deconstruct those performances and figure out what are all the pieces that are involved in that and then parlay that out to the world, you know, for now handed to the coaches or to the athletes of like, maybe this is what you can do to be better. But the one shortfall of science, I think, is that it has to take large sample sizes and as in a lot of different athletes and come down with a general response. You know, like, if we have enough people coming through and doing this, this is what the result is going to be. So now that I take that training intervention, so I'm going to give all these people these efforts to do, then they're going to get this much better. But the problem with that is that every single person in this world is different and they're going to respond differently. Whereas science has to, in some aspects generalise responses that they're getting. Or you get no results. <laughs> yeah, but you're always going to get
0: outliers. Yeah, but yeah. do you not think, and I've had this like question it. pending in my head over the last minute, science to me sometimes, like if we use the Federer as an example, I don't know whether in, this is just true, but like you said, it creates a little bit of a ceiling, a border. You know, like that's what you can do. But like we just said, some of these guys are defying science. But they're the ones who are going out there and just going, I'm just going to do what I can do. A lot of us listen to our coaches and trainers and go, well, he's told me what I can do and that's my limit and I'm not going to try any harder. We're still giving everything we can. But I think what makes, and I'm I'm just feeling and I'm realizing now, that could actually be a part of training that is holding us back. Big time. Do you think or not?
2: I have so many people who think that their thresholds are three hundred watts, therefore they can't do more than three hundred watts. When I was racing, four hundred watts was like that's what we're aspiring to. Now it's four hundred and forty watts. Like the things keep shifting. But if you go and this is where it comes back to the the mental aspect of it, like if we can control if we control things too much in the whole process, we're not letting that athlete explore the limits. What stops you from going harder in the first place? It's your pain threshold. It's like, oh, this... And we all know endurance sports, like, the conversation that you have in your head for that entire ride, that entire race of, like, if you stop now, it'll stop hurting. If you stop now, it'll stop. And so you're fighting this little demon in your head the whole time, and every single person in the bunch is having that. But if you can find ways, some um, mental techniques in order to, like, combat this conversation you're going to keep shifting that, that pain threshold and then ultimately if you can handle more pain than the person next to you maybe you'll end up in front of him or maybe you'll succeed. A couple of
1: years ago was um, we started covering up the power meter when we are doing 20 minute FTP tests because it was all about a perception of going out and going hard and yep. this actually increased my FTP test because I was no longer looking at my ceiling yep my previous best etc mm. so you just covered up the power and you went off a feeling of i'm going as hard as i can yeah and i think that was a really powerful thing to do because like mitch is saying i've grown up in the maybe mitch not necessarily the first couple of years in your career but i grew up in the power meter era our whole life has been quantified i nearly have my nearly necessarily my whole career on training peaks and uh because you've grown up with what you you know and covering that that ceiling up or that marker that tells you this is all you can do was a really great thing and i think there's a like a balance between the science board of like telling the athlete this is their numbers and their training zones and letting the athlete explore what might be possible it's that's not, what needs like a good coach, you know, mm-hmm. to tell them that.
0: Also. But it's not also not only what you can do. Just say, for instance, you were trying to do 450 in your 20 minute, right? Mm. You're like, you almost are happy if you can do 452, right? If that's a successful day. Because mm. previously you could only do 450. Now I've done 452. Great day, right? But you haven't allowed yourself to do 470. Yeah. Because you're happy already with the beating up. the... You know, you've still poked through the ceiling. You haven't also gone, I can't do more than 450. 450 is my limit. You've increased it. But you've never opened that limit to go, maybe I can do 500. And like, I'm, I'm... it's It's a mental game. And I know there's a limit, like you said, the pain telling you to stop, whatever. But I also think we're trying to be please you yeah. the trainer yeah. I'm trying to please myself but I'm also I know myself and I've got my training out there and I want to come home knowing that be it's accountable. yeah it's been a good day yeah. and I've done everything you said and I've done Do a know, little bit more than what you've asked me yeah, yeah, yeah. you know
2: yeah uh, I think part of my own sort of methodology is that I don't like to over prescribe power numbers of power ranges for the athletes to work in sure put them there to guide uh sessions when you're really trying to control the physiological response but now you're taking out the the mental component and that ability to suffer through something so like if you then start setting things of like go out and ride as hard as you can for 20 minutes which sounds super basic but now the athlete is engaged into how they feel. Yeah. Whereas before, the only thing that they were engaged with was the power number that they have on the screen. And so this is what I find. Um, and the professionals actually are great at this. Like it's, it's not a big deal at all, but I find at the amateur level, people coming through and uh, really learning about power meters for the first time, there's so much data, it's so cool, it's really you know, exciting to get stuck into it but they're not being engaged enough with how they feel because it's a very important part of it. And, like, a threshold number will change. Like, we're defining a threshold number, let's say, once a month or something like that. But what it is for you today could be 10 watts different to what it is tomorrow. All these processes are changing. Fatigue, uh, you know, how well you recovered from the day before, uh, how many carbohydrates you ate the day before, what you're going into that session with, how you feel, mental state. Like... All that stuff is changing what the, the performance could be. So now if I'm trying to restrict that by saying I want you to hold four hundred watts for that many minutes, it might not actually be maximising that that particular physiological yeah. stimulus that I'm asking for. So I just I'd like to have the athlete a little bit more engaged in it.
0: Yeah, I think so. Like I can just think about myself, you know, and exactly what I just said. Um, Another thing I wanted to ask you about there is coach versus trainer is dealing with our psychopaths. And yeah, I actually
1: never.
0: I've always wondered that.
1: So do like, you feel honest. like? <laughs> can I answer this when Luke leaves
0: <laughs> the room? Do you feel <laughs> like <laughs> you're like? I can imagine you <laughs> just like you get through these conversations on the phone and you just like hang up the phone and you go. Jeez, Jesus. <laughs> Whoa, how old is this guy? Three years old? What's wrong with him? You know what I mean? Uh, and you, you understand yourself being an ex-professional that we very... <laughs> it's, it's stable. It's stable. We're unstable, very insecure at times. And it's about building up that belief. Like we just said before, even coming down to it, I know myself when I've got a hard training session even. And I think this has been created out of these power meters, to be honest, that previously before I was going out there doing hard days, whatever I could do, whatever, and I'm sure they were great numbers before I had a power meter, but now suddenly I'm accountable, and if I don't achieve these numbers, it hasn't been a great day, but it probably still has perceived effort as long as I'm still hurting, you know what I mean? So I'm building myself up even for training days, let alone a race, you know, so have you found that is also just as much, I know we sort of covered that already, but just as much as part of the game is making sure we're in the right headspace, one to train, but two to race? And how is that dealing with us as athletes? And is that something you've had to learn yourself, or you sort of just knew where we we're at being an ex athlete?
2: Hmm.
0: If you understand the question. Yeah,
2: no, it's a good question. Again, everyone is different.
0: I think um,
2: different athletes will present different triggers so you have to listen to what they're saying and a little bit of what they're not saying as well mm. um, because there's a lot to, to read into that into that process the time with an athlete would also help I guess like
1: definitely initially you start with a few new athletes like starting mm-hmm. with green edge you've got five new guys or six new guys yeah. and then all of a sudden you've got a guy saying like oh I hate training or today was a bad session etc then the next day, oh, freaking out about that. But that might be a comment that he always leaves. And it's yeah. something that doesn't really, he just doesn't actually like training and that's it. But when a guy who loves training he leaves a comment like that, that's like
2: yeah. a red alarm, I should call the guy. Well, for example, Training Peaks now has a smiley face metric, right? Yeah, yeah. and it's yeah. starting to get into that, yeah. I have a few people who just always have a frowny face, like every day, <laughs> even on the best day of lives just like frowny face. And uh, you've got other guys who are just like happy as Larry every day and they're just out riding with the daisies. Um, No, I think that accountability of like every day is definitely putting pressure on the professionals, for example, and, and anyone who's sort of involved with investing in performance. It does put pressure there. And it's raising the bar. It's raising the game. And if you want to play the game, I think you have to... You have to invest in those sort of things. But it's not about personal best. It's not about always achieving more every single day. It's about keeping the bigger picture in mind. And maybe, maybe that's where the coach needs to step in and say, this is what the goal is for this session. If you can hit these numbers this many times, I know you're going to go home, you're going to have a little bit of energy left. But my goal is not actually for you to write yourself off today. Because ultimately we do that, we do it the next day, we build this block, and then you're going to end up on race day being at that level. Mm -hmm. Um, So creating a process, creating goals, little goals around that, I think it can be very motivating. Um, It does put pressure on the athlete, but then you get to race time. Athletes have so much pressure on themselves anyway, just their own personal pressure that they put on themselves.
0: If they're going to freak out and training, you're going to have bigger issues further down the line.
2: Don't know if that answers your question. Is mm.
0: that you no, it does. And I think what I want to ask you also is maybe a little bit more now on a day-to-day basis, I don't think everyone understands really what you have to do, you know, and maybe it sounds a little bit glamorous on the outside. Oh, yeah, he's a, he's a bit of a team trainer. Is he on a, on a team? What does he do? Just, you know, look over a couple of SRMs and... Kick back, record a podcast and drink five beers, you know? Is it five now, (laughs) is (laughs) it? I don't know. But run us through quickly what a day, day in, day out now looks for you because we're staying here together in this house reconning and I haven't seen you all day. We had an easy ride this morning. I came back and you were on the computer. We went out and got some treatment done and came back and you're still on the computer. So... What does it actually look like day-to-day as a trainer? Yeah, and it's really – I I
2: think one of the things – yeah, that's a good point. Um, One of the things that I love about this profession is that it's very dynamic and it changes a lot. Like last week I was in Sierra Nevada with a few athletes doing altitude training, driving behind in the car, listening to podcasts, Life in the Peloton, check it out if you have not already uh, listening to books on tape, stuff like that watching the riders on the bike, watching how well they're pedalling, you know, just being able to interact them, with them in the moment, especially when people are tired and, you know, a little bit cranky, that's when you sort of get some Is that when, when sorry to interrupt, interrupt, is, is that, that
0: when you can actually put a little bit more merit on their comments back in Training Peaks? Suddenly you're understanding the guy, you're like, okay I see now why he puts the frowny flakes on every day. Yeah. Now I'm getting this guy because you see each, each other. It's one thing seeing a guy. sorry re- for his partner. You see one guy on <laughs> a, a recovery ride. There's one yeah. then seeing a guy at the top of a climb after four and a half hours. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Anyway.
2: Yeah. The, the, um, the context of like the comments, the getting context of who a person is and how they're holding themselves is a great sign of what's going on in performance and if you don't know who the person is if you don't know what's going on in their lives it's really hard to sort of put everything into place and this is one of the things that i had concerns about like so i've been on three sides of the fence if there are that many i was the athlete then i was the private coach and now i'm you know do the team stuff as well and with the team stuff the thing that i was always uh, a little bit Concerned about was this, would I be able to create an environment where my athletes can trust me enough to be honest with me and tell me everything that's going on so that I can and, and for them to understand and appreciate
0: that my job is for them, my job is to help them succeed to get and what done. they tell you is not going back into the team right. and ultimately reflecting on their race program or yada yada Situation, yada, cetera,
2: yeah. Yeah. yeah, so I'm the filter of that, like yeah. I, I need to create an environment within each personal relationship that I have on a team with the guys so that they're comfortable enough to be able to come to me and so far so good. Like this is a role I've had for six months in this team and so far it's, I feel like it's going well um, but time will be the judge I suppose of like they're giving me everything that they've got. They um, are sharing the things in their life that are affecting their performances because yeah. that might not be just a training pics file at the end of the day that could be like broke up with my girlfriend, Uh, the dog ran out in front of a car, something like that, you know, Mm. like all these different things are going to affect what's going on. Drank five beers last night, (laughs) didn't go so well today. Stuff like that, you know. So it's important to have that context with the numbers that you're looking at because Mm. it brings it back to the fact that everyone's an individual. Everyone's human. No one's a robot, you know. We have to, You always have to understand all of that. It's not... And this is where I always... A lot of what I do as a coach was things that I wish I had when I was an athlete. Mm. And I wasn't in a situation where I could afford to have uh, my coach there and I couldn't afford to um, have all those resources around me all the time. Uh, And it wasn't really... Things weren't really set up that way back then. I I think training has been something that's really... Been professionalized. I don't know if that's really a word. But it's become a lot more professional in the last five years. I think it's this is the reason now why the peloton is going so fast is because of how all this minutia. Like we have we have four coaches on the team, uh, a few sports scientists. We, we're involved with every single athlete's um, processes, right? Like mm. we're engaged in all that so that we can we can. Effectively be a positive influence on any of that stuff wherever we can be. Um, So this is, I think, why professional cycling at the top level has gone to such a high level now. Everyone's going as fast as they ever have, is because all of these little details have been taken care of. And it's not just looking at a data file. It really, it really—that's a small part of it. It's important. It still quantifies performance, but it's the result. It's not the processes that go into
0: it. And I think just what you just said then comes back to your very first point that we said is that you've got to make yourself feel comfortable, make the athlete feel comfortable enough in you that they believe in what you're prescribing. Yeah. Because if the belief isn't there, the performance isn't happening. Yeah. So you know it's it's it comes back around again and even though you're an individual coach doing that, you've got to try and bring that philosophy, if you can, into a team environment Which I think is very difficult because unfortunately for a team environment opposed to an individual coach, you're an individual coach with me through multiple teams. Mm -hmm. Team coach, you could be only there for one, two years and on your way. So it's difficult to really fully believe in that guy that he's giving him his best for you.
2: You're like, you know what? Yeah, you're like, is he just doing what he has to do to, you know, get his paycheck? And that's a really
0: difficult dynamic. I can imagine you're facing with these guys. You're like, no, no, believe me. Mm. I'm here for you. You know, And it's it's getting that trust.
2: Yeah. And we've got to gain that. Like, I don't expect it just to be given to me. So you know, I mm. try to conduct my life and what I present to the athletes, in, hopefully in a way that they can take faith in that and, and can invest in that. Um, Yeah, it's something that I I greatly believe in because it's something that I needed as as an athlete myself. Mm. Um, And this is again, just to jump back to the the role of the scientists and stuff. It's like they're crunching the numbers right there. They're looking at the data and creating uh, an unbiased view of what's going on. Whereas the coach is involved with everything. Yeah, they're involved with those numbers, but they're also involved with the psychological component nutritional, tactical um,
0: everything. equipment. Like I think that's up. The, the best wrap-up of a, yeah. a coach, yeah, you know exactly, what I mean? It's yeah. like it's it's everything.
1: Because yeah. we can all want that magic program and it really doesn't actually exist. You know, we can all sit on a tech podcast here and talk about what. how do you build the, the, the pyramid for, and it really doesn't actually exist. You know, we can all sit on a tech podcast here and talk about... What, how do you build the, the, the pyramid for, for a person and someone listening on the podcast and go out there and do it mm. and train themselves to become world tour where it just doesn't exist you know like you said it's just it's individualized. so individualised and being a coach versus someone that's quantifying like that is uh, is a difference and it just yeah it doesn't exist out there and that's why uh,
2: that's why everyone does what they do <laughs> just wanted to jump back to the but I don't want to throw science under the bus there for a second because it really is an important part of what we're doing and the, the biggest thing that I learnt out of it is that I came as an athlete and I felt things working or I could see things were working but something that understanding science and the role that it plays in the process was that it creates a process the scientific process is one of like um, creating a theory, going out and trying it and validating it. And if you can't validate it, to go back to the beginning of that conversation of like having a power meter, being able to con- quantify what's going on, you can't manage what you don't record, or, you know, not having that power meter there in the first place, mm. then you don't, you, you're just working blindly, you're not, you don't know for sure that you're working forward. Gives you a reference point, a place to start. Well, no, it just quantifies whether it's actually working or not, you know. Mm -hmm. And so that's something that was, uh, that it contributed a lot to me coming from the athletic side of things and then being more the the coaching side of things of like, if I can't validate that what I'm doing with this athlete, because this athlete is different to what I was, if I can't validate that this is actually working for them, then I need to move on and try something else. Hmm. So it really does play an important piece with yeah, that, I can but it's just not it's not broad brush strokes of a like this one scientific method works
0: for everybody. It's just it doesn't work like that. To finish up, Durbo's sitting here. You're his coach. You know his physiology. You know his data. What's going to happen with him coming up? We're starting racing on Wednesday what well, does he know he's only the coach he knows he knows what's happening in there what, Durbo run us through on a, on a physiological level where is Durbo at coming into the classics you've built his peak up to now he's had Torino he's had a bit of a rest we've done our recons where's he sitting now on a, on a science base. he's trying to pull out some golden nuggets here when does this podcast come out um, well, not these. So, so it's, gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna, <laughs> it's gonna come out in the next couple of weeks. So it'll be after the racing. So tell us what's gonna happen. We can give it all over, yeah. Come on, yeah. Gamble no, on. he's he's in good form. He's in good form.
2: Um, I think we've had one of the uh, most. Uh, what's the word? Trouble free. Yeah. Preparations this year, everything's gone in place. National champion, yeah, When the TT there in Australia, which was a really nice way to start the year. And started uh, the year very, very well. And so we've come into this block of racing um, yeah. on top of the preparation. Um, Some numbers look good. Uh, make sure the mind's in the right place. Uh, body, he's doing his body maintenance stuff, getting ready for everything. You guys snuck off for a cheeky sauna this afternoon. We all spent the weekend doing recons of these crazy of Is,
0: he, is he missing anything that you know of, like any punch or? Not that I know of. Turbo, how are you feeling like you're missing anything? Are you how are you feeling?
1: i uh, yeah, feeling pretty good.
0: Yeah, I think Ben's right. Think, yeah, just give us a pretty. Uh, that was a nice interview answer. <laughs> Well,
1: competitive, com- yeah. Competitive, 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 yeah. Competitive,
0: yeah. I'm not a. Uh, How would you feel out yesterday on the recon?
1: Well, look, I wiped the floor with you, so in the, you yeah, did. it's not really a problem. So, but <laughs> you were going good. <laughs> so it all from the motorbike. Yeah, exactly. The <laughs> motorbike. What
0: was it? What was the sensations going yesterday over the cobbles? What were you thinking? Uh,
1: I was enjoying being out there. Um, I think it's. Uh, a special time actually to be able to just go out there and just smash the cobbles like we've been doing this for many years, me and you. And uh it's funny, like still doing the same thing now and I love it. And uh I feel good and every year you learn so much more and I love these races and like, you know, this year I really wanna give it a give it a good crack and I want to be up there. So yeah, what can you do? And I'm just going to give him my best, and like I'm not going to sit here and, and claim a result because uh, just going to go out there and, and, and give it.
0: What happened over the timeberg though? How come I was first up there?
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. if for anyone who knows the classics, there's a <laughs> client called the timeberg that Luke Derrick doesn't like that much, but. Mitch took the gutter, which is hot mix, <laughs> and I took the I that, yeah. cobbles, and there's a big difference between cobbles and hot mix, so.
0: Tom Boonen showed me that route, and I'll follow the best. <laughs> well, apparently, it's not happening anymore.
1: The Boonen route is dead. They're barricading it, so. Oh, they really are. Yeah. That's it. That's why I took the cobbles. Nice. So You can sit back on the motorbike watching me getting smashed by Mitch up the up the climb because he's cheating really. <laughs> Actually I was a social cyclist. He was going, "Good yeah, that guy? Yeah, he guy was still in my wheel. Yeah, yeah I was, uh, what are you doing? He said, oh, I'm from Bruges, I'm going cycling this this random guy jumped on the back of us and uh, yes yeah, smashed me up the top.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Good for Morale.
1: Yeah, we'll probably see him in a few years in Lotto or something. But, uh...
0: <laughs> well guys thanks for recording the pod. We'll hit the, hit the hay. We've got a race in a couple of days, so um, cheers, Ben, for coming on. Pleasure. Sharing all your, your gems. Thanks for having me. Cheers, Ben. Dervs. Thanks, Mitch. Once again. Thanks, boys. Well, <clears throat> I hope that was able to give you a little understanding to the training and the emotional support that goes into a professional cyclist, um, and that you're able to take something away from it. I want to say thanks to my producer behind the scenes, Lara, and everyone out there for listening in and sending in your feedback. Keep listening and reaching out to me through the interwebs with all your questions and future ideas for coming upcoming pods. Um, I've got a stack more coming up, so until then, cheers.